Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Henning Piper about his new book, Fail Against Horsemen and Genocidal Warfare, the SS Cavalry Brigade in the Soviet Union. Henning, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, Craig. Um, I want to, it's a pleasure to have you today, and uh, before we begin talking about your book, I'll always like to ask the author a little bit about themselves, their background, how they got interested in history, um, and what, they, what they're doing now. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Well, um, I've always had a strong interest in Germany, German history, particularly uh, 20th century German history and military history. And um, my background is um, I'm holding an MA in modern history, medieval history, and English literature from the University of Freiburg in Germany. And after that, I did a PhD at the University of Sheffield in Great Britain. And for this PhD program, I wrote my dissertation on Fegelein's Horsemen and Genocidal Warfare. So uh, my book is the book version of that PhD dissertation. Um, I'm currently working as a high school teacher here in Germany. I teach history, English, and politics. Uh, prior to that, I have worked as a visitor guide at the Belsen Memorial, and I have worked for the German War Graves Commission as a school consultant. So I've done a lot of work at memorials with school children. I've done history projects and projects uh, for the prevention of right-wing extremism. So I've covered quite a lot of um, education on 20th century German history, I think. And, and so you mentioned that this this book is a is a is the book form of your dissertation. How did you come up with this particular topic? I, mean, I know you mentioned your interest in military history, but um, why this why this topic specifically? Um, during my MA studies, I did an internship at the Ludwigsburg branch of the German Federal Archives, and this particular branch is where all the uh, court files are being stored from uh, court proceedings against Nazi perpetrators. And um, I was uh, busy working on many different cases, many different files there as an intern. And when I was looking for a PhD topic some years later, I inquired again at the archives and um, I was recommended this particular topic by the then head of the archives, Dr. Andreas Kunz. Um, because he told me that there were two court cases with a lot of material on the SS Cavalry Brigade, and this material 
had not been researched before or not uh, completely researched before. So I decided to uh, go ahead with that and embarked on a journey, a very interesting research journey of a few years. Um, yeah, interesting. And uh, I'd like to begin talking about your book with you having us, um, with having you give us some background on the SS Cavalry Brigade, because I, I don't think it's something a lot of listeners are going to be super familiar with. Um, so if you could talk to a little bit about um, how the unit comes to be, who joins the unit, um, sort of its its organizational history, and you know, in its brief form. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, the background of this particular unit is very closely tied to the history of sport in Nazi Germany, uh, and of course, not just any sport, but horse riding. And uh, the key character, or the main character in this context, is Hermann Fegelein, and I can provide some uh, info on his biography a bit later. Um, it's important to state that he was one of Germany's top show jumpers and a protégé of Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS. And um, Hermann Fegelein established the main riding school of the SS at Munich, and the personnel or the um, equestrians trained this particular school later became the nucleus of the SS Cavalry Brigade. And it's important to know that uh, during the Third Reich, uh, the paramilitary organizations, the SA and the SS, um, took control of all riding clubs and riding associations in Germany to enhance their own prestige. The SS managed to win over some of Germany's best jockeys and equestrians and tried, uh, tried to train them for the Olympics. And this was done at the main riding school in Munich, controlled by Hermann Fegelein. Um, Fegelein was a riding school owner's son. He came from Bavaria, and his father had a riding school um, already in the late 1920s and early 1930s. At this school, um, SS equestrians were trained even before the Nazi takeover, and Hermann Fegelein um, later became a riding instructor himself in the 1930s. He was one of Germany's top jockeys, and um, it was through his connection with um, local Nazi politicians that he met Heinrich Himmler in the 1930s in Munich. And Heinrich Himmler took a great interest in this uh, talented young jockey and his uh, enthusiasm for National Socialism and the SS. And that's how um, Fegelein was entrusted with building up this particular riding school. And in 1939, when the Second World War began, uh, Hermann Fegelein did not want his um, his top equestrians and horses to be drafted into the Wehrmacht, and he managed to gain Himmler's permission to build up a special cavalry unit for the SS. So Heinrich Himmler sent Hermann Fegelein into Poland, where Fegelein built up an occupation force, a kind of police force, out of his um, some 250 equestrians and horses, and this police force supported the German occupation effort in Poland. Uh, during two years, from 1939 till 1941, this small force of 250 men grew to comprise some 4,000 men and as many horses, and um, it was employed for um, crimes against the Polish population. So uh, the SS cavalry in Poland um, took part in deportations and massacres of Jews 
as well as people who were targeted as members of the Polish ruling classes or the Polish intelligentsia. So this was um, their main task during the two years in Poland. And they were also trained as soldiers, and they were drilled to be unquestioning killers to uh, support the Nazi occupation effort. And um, their organization as a cavalry unit was modeled on um, Wehrmacht cavalry units. So the 4,000 SS cavalry men were structured in two regiments, which later were amalgamated to become a brigade in 1941. And these two regiments were modeled on Wehrmacht cavalry regiments, but um, they lacked training, and at the beginning they also lacked proper equipment. So <clears throat> their, their outside form as regiments does not uh, mean or did not mean that they were perfectly trained um, military-grade uh, regiments, but rather still in the development, development until 1941. So um, their main use was that as a killing squad, an occupation squad, a police force in Poland, and it was only in early 1941 that a more military char uh, character was adapted by these units. Um, yeah, bef before we move into that, I, I, I want to ask a, a brief follow-up. Um, I'm interested in, in the character of the, the characters that joined or were assigned to this unit. Did they, um, because you mentioned it started out very small, 250. Um, is there a certain background that these individuals may have shared, um, particularly early on when it was so small, um, were they more from elite stratus of, of German society or not? Um, and then obviously when it expands to 4,000, um, and what was the criteria for getting into this unit? At the beginning, uh, they were very much coming from the elite strata of German society. Um, they were elite horsemen. They were some of the best uh, sportsmen in equestrianism that Germany had to offer in the 1930s. Um, and they were the first ones to come to Poland in 1939, the first 250 men. And later on, when the units were expanded, um, the SS cavalry uh, conducted recruitment drives amongst ethnic Germans living in Poland. So they were very much looking for young men who um, were used to working with horses but uh, or maybe coming from a farming background, but not necessarily. They could do horse training later on. And also they recruited people who had been members of the um, SS in general back in Germany. So the uh, paramilitary SS had a manpower pool from which the military SS would draft recruits after the beginning of the Second World War. And that's what the cavalry did as well from 1939 onwards. Um, was this a desirable assignment? Were there, were there people who really wanted to be in this unit? Was there... Um prestige to being a part of this unit? Yes, very much so, very much so. And there was also um, a strict selection once uh, the man had arrived in Poland. Um, people who lacked proper horsemanship skills were transferred to other units, for example, the SS infantry or artillery or other units. Okay, so I, yeah, I just, I think it's important to, for people to get a sort of a, a flavor of what um, these units, who makes up these units, what they're level of prestiges and so on. Um, so you mentioned in uh, 41, the nature of the unit changes to a, a more militarized unit. Can you um, explain that process and then sort of talk about their role in the war in the East? And then I'll ask some, some follow-ups after that. 
Yes. Um, well, in 1939, when the build-up of uh, regiments in Poland started, they lacked all uh, pieces of equipment and the necessary organizational structure. They had hardly any weapons. They were even short of uniforms, uh, provisions, food, everything. So they had to put in a lot of effort to build their own stables together, their equipment, their horses, their weapons, everything. And at the beginning, the Wehrmacht was not very helpful, but saw them as a um, unwanted competition. But throughout the first two years, they managed to acquire all the necessary equipment, and um, they had uh, enough horses, enough uh, weapons. They started to build up their own um, horse-drawn artillery units, for example, and they, um, they were pretty much... Uh, sorted and set up as cavalry regiments on the eve of Operation Barbarossa in the summer of 1941. What they lacked was proper military training because their instructors, most of them had some kind of horse riding background. Perhaps they were veterans of World War One. Perhaps they came from the police, were veterans of the SS, but most of them were not trained soldiers or trained officers. So they were able to drill the young men very strongly in a very tough manner, um, but um, they were not, in most cases, able to convey to them skills they need, they would have needed on the battlefield. So this came very much as learning by doing later on, and this also helps to explain why the brigade suffered such heavy losses in combat against the Red Army later. So whilst they had all the necessary equipment and weapons in the summer of 1941, they were still short of being a military unit. They were still a paramilitary unit that wanted to be more than that. Uh, you mentioned a couple times now that their lack of equipment and then uh, ultimately they were able to, uh, to get the necessary things. W was this in any way in part to uh, Palogan's relationship with Himmler? Um. No, not really. Um, no. This was a problem that was uh, common to other SS units as well at the beginning. Um, the, the problem was the competition with the Wehrmacht. The Wehrmacht did not want to release um, stockpiles of weapons or vehicles or provisions, and that was a major problem in 1939-1940. But um, SS commanders like Hermann Fegelein or also um, Theodor Eike, commander of the 3rd SS Division, they managed to uh, scrounge and bag together all their equipment from other units in Germany, and later on um, the connection with the Wehrmacht improved greatly. So uh, at the end of the day, they got all their necessary equipment. And, and you talked a little bit about officers, and, and there was very much a lot of learning by doing. Um, was there at any point in the unit they sort of received um, trained, more well-trained officers, or was this something that was just characteristic of, of this unit? Um, or and was it characteristic of other SS units? Was, was it sort of all the same? Uh, this is a problem shared by many SS units, especially the first SS regiments and divisions during the first maybe two years of the war, because many of their commanders and officers did not have a military background or and did not have a thorough um they did not undergo thorough military training. There were only some examples of um, skilled commanders with a military background, but Fegelein, for example, was not one of them. So um, it was only during the first years of the war that the cooperation with the Wehrmacht improved, that um, SS officers could 
participate in training and maneuvers in Germany, for example, with Wehrmacht units, uh, for example, undergo special um, artillery training, infantry training, tank training, uh, mobile warfare training, but that was only to come in the, the early 1940s. And it was not until late 1941, early 1942, that SS units received better recognition for having improved on the battlefield. Their success was bought or was achieved with very high losses, and they um, gained a reputation for being very tough and um, very brave, but um, at the beginning they lacked military skills. Um, you mentioned that the heavy losses. Uh, if you could talk about the unit's participation in Barbarossa, uh, where were they? Um, well, where were they fighting? Um, what kinds of fighting were they engaging in? And then we'll talk about what they did sort of after the operation ends. Yes. Um, at the beginning, they were pretty much um, on the sidelines of Barbarossa because they were uh, being garrisoned in East Prussia, so in Eastern Germany on the border with um, Lithuania and Belarus. And it was not, um, it was just a few days into the campaign that they were called uh, to uh, to fill a gap in the Eastern Front. So um, only some of the subunits experienced combat near the Polish city of Bialystok about four or five days after the beginning of Barbarossa, but it was not a major operation. They were not employed in combat until late 1941. They were first uh, going to be used as a kind of counterinsurgency unit, kind of mopping up unit that was to um, suppress partisan warfare and combat Red Army stragglers behind the quickly advancing German front. So they um, were going to be used in um, Belarus and northern Ukraine behind the front to establish connections um, with the fighting units at the front, and they were supposed to uh, mop up enemy units and to target the Jewish population. They were not um, sent forward in a combat role, and the SS leadership knew that they were not ready for combat in the summer of 1941. So, sort of in their in their auxiliary role or in their in their mop up role, um, you mentioned they were sort of anti partisans, uh, and then you know, of course, uh, persecuting Jews. Can, can you talk about their their role in that? Is it did they function sort of like an Einsatzgruppen unit, or was it more like ad hoc, you know? Um, they very much functioned like an Einsatzgruppe unit. Uh, Heinrich Himmler briefed them at their quarters in East Prussia just a few days before they set off for their uh, destination in Belarus and northern Ukraine, and he told them that their area of deployment was going to be the Pripyat Marshes uh, region, on the border of Belarus and Ukraine, and that their target would be to eliminate the Jews in that area. And um, the counterinsurgency bid was to uh, come later. At first, they didn't encounter any partisans because there were no partisans in the first weeks of the German campaign. Their task was to eliminate the Jews, and this is proven by um, statements from former SS cavalrymen who spoke about this particular Himmler speech they listened to a few days before their deployment. So um, the comparison with an Einsatzgruppe or also with police battalions employed by Germans to kill the Jews in the East works very well. Um, 
did you find in your research that any members of these units sort of had second thoughts about this um, assignment, or, or did you have anybody that requested reassignment, or um, because they were in the SS, they you know had ideological training and were sort of and you know all right with all of this? Yes, um, actually, the the composition of the units was very uh, heterogeneous. Uh, whilst there were quite a lot of dedicated Nazis or um, ideologically trained Hitler Youth members, uh, there were also many older men, farmers, fathers, who had second thoughts. Um, in a way, their, um, their process of getting used to brutality mirrors that Christopher Browning described for Reserve Police Battalion 101, and we have a lot of uh, statements from the court files that, that prove this. Uh, there were actually incidents of cavalrymen who uh, chose to opt out of participating in massacres. The problem is that some decades after they gave their statements, it is hard to say whether these were exculpatory statements or whether they actually did opt out of particular executions in Belarus, in Ukraine, uh, in Russia. But we know that during his speech, um, Himmler gave to them in East Prussia. He even offered them the possibility to say, uh, to say, uh, no, I cannot do this. I cannot participate in this. And this fits in with many other speeches he gave to members of police battalions or Einsatzgruppen members in the summer of 1941, because he knew, and later on, this would prove to be true, that um, the men could not withstand the terrors and the brutality of what they were, uh, what they had to do on a daily basis. So this is reflected in statements of former SS cavalrymen as well. But um, I think it's safe assumption to say that most of them, the vast majority of them, functioned as they were ordered to do. So they, they became perpetrators. Some became bystanders because they did not have an active role in the killing. But um, I have not found any example of somebody openly refusing uh, to participate in killings. I found some examples of people who said maybe... Mm, well, I found my way to uh, get out of a particular action. Um, and I'll definitely want to talk a little bit more about this, um, but I, I want to circle back to um, Baligan himself. Um, what was he like as a commanding officer? Was he popular with his men? Um, how did he main, you know, how did he run his unit um, and, and sort of his own personal role within you know, the, the atrocities that they, they committed. Uh, Hermann Figlein ran his unit in a very unconventional manner because um, he followed a very much gung-ho approach. He lacked formal military training, but he wanted to, he had a burning ambition to prove himself as a brilliant commander in the field. And for him it worked because he got highly decorated. And it can be assumed that some of these high decorations were bestowed upon him by Heinrich Himmler and did not actually come from uh, being a brilliant war hero. Um, many survivors say that he was a very good commander. He drove them forward. He led from the front and he managed to turn very difficult situations around. For example, when they were outnumbered and outgunned on the Eastern Front. But um, I've analyzed veterans' accounts of their um, time in combat with the SS cavalry and I think it, it can be stated that um, those who did not think that he was a brilliant leader did not survive to tell the tale. The tale was told by organized veterans 
after the war who um, retained their Nazi views, who uh, remained in veterans' organizations. So um, Hermann Fegelein was not a brilliant commander, but he managed to sell himself as a brilliant commander. And I think he was not exactly a likable person, but rather a very unsavory character who um, he was not even well liked in, in Nazi circles. He was characterized as very arrogant, bossy parvenu. He was characterized as an upstart who always um, tried to or managed to pull strings with other people. But he was not considered a, um, a reliable, likable uh, soldier or brilliant commander of troops. Um, so are you are you in part saying that he owes his position and a lot of his success to his relationship directly with Himmler? Himmler sort of covered for him quite a bit. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, how similar is he to other sort of SS commanders, um, you know, Waffen SS commanders, someone like uh, Joachim Piper, for instance? Um, did, uh, did, do you see that there's any sort of, not um, any sort of, what am I trying to ask? The uh, Any sort of defining characteristics of Waffen SS commanders, do they have some of the same ways of doing things? Because um, Piper was very much the same as, as what you're describing, lead from the front, very brash, tough mm. situations. I'm just wondering if there's something in their training, their ideological training, that makes them somewhat, you know, gives them some of the same characteristics. Um, the comparison with Piper works very well because... Um, as you said, they, they shared quite a lot of the same characteristics. And also Piper, I think even more than Fegelein, was very much a product of Himmler looking for people he could form or mold into brilliant young commanders. Uh, they were also, I think Piper was five or six years younger, but they were roughly the same age cohort. So that comparison works as well. Fegelein and Piper were not uh, belonging to the older generation who formed the first division commanders of the Waffen-SS, men like um, Theodor Eichel or um, General Steiner, for example, the young ones were those who were built up to become war heroes. They were built up to become uh, propaganda heroes and um, their reputation became massive throughout the war years and it was not always backed by what they um, by what they achieved on the battlefield. Um, Jochen Piper too had very strong uh, shortcomings in military training, which is why, same as with Fegelein, uh, those who did not survive did not were not able to tell the tale of what their commander was like in the field. With Piper too, we have young assessment who said he was a brilliant commander, but also um, Piper's way of leadership incurred unnecessary and sometimes very heavy losses, and um, it was a characteristic for young SS military leaders that they. Um, lacked military training, for example, in the battle of combined weapons. They would lead very daring infantry assaults on Soviet positions and then lose half their men in, I don't know, half an hour. So they were lacking proper training and background, and they were also um, too keen and too brash to function on the battlefield under very stressful conditions. Yeah, I was, I was very, I was, I was struck when I was reading your book at, at how similar he was to Piper in a sort of a personality uh, a way. So I, I definitely wanted to ask. Um, you mentioned the, um, the, the pre-pit marshes a little, uh, a little while ago. I wonder if we can go back to that. Um, explain to us geographically where that is and um, what they were doing there. 
So the Pripyat Marshes is a um, region in southern Belarus and northern Ukraine. It is a very um, swampy, marshy area, even to this day. And the river Pripyat runs um, from west to east through this through this area. The Pripyat Marshes um, extend some 300 miles or 480 kilometers from west to east and some 140 miles or 220 kilometers from north to south. And this area was largely bypassed by German troops in the summer of 1941 because of this uh, inaccessibility. So Wehrmacht tank columns or motorized units could not really cross the swamps. There were not enough roads. There were dense forests. And the SS cavalry was employed because um, the Wehrmacht and SS leadership thought that um, on their horses, they'd be highly mobile and able to um, cross the area in a better way than motorized Wehrmacht or Waffen-SS units. And it was in this area that uh, they were to carry out their role as a killing squad. And this particular role, the um, aim of targeting the Jewish population in this area, was to harden them for future combat missions. So when they were lacking military training, the SS leadership thought, well, we can employ them to um, to look for Red Army stragglers, combat leftover Red Army units that had been caught behind the German front and to target the Jewish population. And that's all these tasks. That's um, what they did from late July 1941 onwards. Um, what what was the population sort of like in this area? Was it was it densely populated? Was it sparsely populated? You mentioned the, the difficult terrains. I, I can't imagine there was... Too, too many people that lived there. No, it was very sparsely populated, um, especially in the in the northern part in uh, Belarus. There was um, there were hardly any um, bigger settlements or towns. In the south, there were a few cities that were that were a bit bigger. For example, the regional center of Pinsk with about twenty to thirty thousand inhabitants. But um, other than that, there were mostly small villages, remote farms, uh, little hamlets, basically. Um, and, and so do you have a, a handle on sort of casualty figures that they inflicted upon the local populations? Do, or is there a clear number? There is no clear number. I can only come up with an estimate based upon the research of other authors and my own estimates. And I have found that between late July and September 1941, the SS cavalry brigade killed between 24,000 and 30,000 Jews in the Pripyat Marshes region. And this number adds an unknown number of um, partisans. There were some partisans, but not many. Uh, Red Army men, prisoners of war, and civilians of other backgrounds, for example, Communist Party members. Um, do they... Are these conducted in mostly small killing operations, or do they have a sort of a, a few or even one sort of large event, one large casualty event? Um, there were all sorts of uh, killing missions during this time. Uh, sometimes only a few people in a remote hamlet were killed on one day, and there were several very large uh, killing actions. For example, in the town of Pinsk in early August 1941, between seven and 9,000 Jews were killed within three days, and that's an operation that was 
organized entirely by the SS Cavalry Brigade. Yeah, I, I think these are important things to discuss because I, I think people forget or, you know, when they think of the Holocaust, they think of Auschwitz and, um, you know, much of the killing is done in this in this fashion by these kinds of, of units. Um, so I think to highlight their their role in this um, is essential for people that are listening. Um, so as the war, the tide of the war starts to turn, um, how does their role change? Um, you mentioned they were being sort of hardened up for for combat. Um, do they ever sort of get as the as the Soviets begin their counteroffensive? Do they ever get thrusted into those combat heavy roles? Yes, very much so. Um, at first, there was an increase in uh, partisans, an increase uh, in guerrillas. They had to combat um, during their uh, mission. In Belarus, in the Pripyat marshes, from September onwards, we have an upsurge in the Soviet partisan movement, so combating partisans became harder for them. <clears throat> and from <clears throat> October onwards, October 1941, they were transferred to another sector of the front, so they were transferred to uh, the dividing line between German army groups north and center, some 150 miles, 200 miles west of Moscow, and um, at first they were conducting counterinsurgency missions and several massacres of Jews there as well, so pretty much like in the private marshes. But um, in December 1941, when the Red Army counteroffensive started, they found themselves in a heavily fought sector of the Eastern Front, and as there were hardly any other German troops defending that sector, they had to... Um, bear the brunt of combat against Soviet forces there for which they were not prepared. Um, and, and so when you say they're not prepared, what, what kind of uh, casualties did they suffer? Um, they had to fight against um, all sorts of, uh, of Soviet units on the battlefield and um, the kind of daring assaults on heavily fortified Soviet positions I mentioned earlier occurred in this area when they lost um, sometimes half a company or half a cavalry squadron in one day. Um, but also they had to uh, stand up against Soviet tanks. They were, um, they became, they became attacked from the air by Soviet planes. There was hardly any German air cover during that time. And um, also they, they had mostly light weapons. They lacked um, heavy anti-tank weapons. They did have some artillery, but not much, uh, not much, and also they were outnumbered by the Soviets. So one of their battalions was almost completely annihilated within a couple of days, and um, the SS Cavalry Brigade incurred losses of about 50% of its total strength between December 1941 and February or March 1942. Um, so you so you just, just outlined their combat performance, and it sounds like their lack of equipment is a, is a big part of that. Um, um, what, just uh, on oh. their combat performance, in some cases, it actually was very good because um, they fought very bravely. They were very determined to um, stop Soviet attacks or to take objectives on the battlefield. But, um, well, as I said, a gung-ho approach does not work in all cases, and fanaticism can not always help when you lack the equipment. So um, their performance was not bad as such, 
but um, they were up against hopeless odds in that case. Mm. Um, were they at, at what point were they sort of transferred back to Germany um, to sort of how did they finish the war? I guess is the question. <laughs> um, they remained on the Eastern Front for the remainder of the war, basically. Um, the SS Cavalry Brigade remained in the field until the summer of 1942. At that point, there were only some 500 men left of the original 4,000. Of course, many had been medevaced and treated as wounded, but some 2,000 uh, were actually uh, fatal casualties during that uh, first winter in the Soviet Union. Um, in 1942, they were withdrawn from the front and they were taken to Poland where they were, where the units were replenished and built up to form an SS cavalry division. So they became a division of about 20,000 men, the 8th SS cavalry division. And this unit fought at the Eastern Front until the remainder of the war, uh, during the remainder of the war. Um, they suffered heavy losses during counterinsurgency campaigns, but also during fighting on the front, in particular during 1943. And um, at the end of the war, in early 1945, they were deployed at Budapest, where uh, the uh, losses they suffered were so heavy that um, the 8th SS cavalry divisions and also two other SS cavalry divisions that had been formed by them ceased to exist mm -hmm. because... Um, Yes, most of them were killed in combat or became prisoners of war. Um, you mentioned Hungary. Did, did any of the units participate in the deportation of Hungarian Jews? I do not have any evidence for that. They were mostly uh, undergoing training in Hungary, and uh, they took part in the frontline fighting. Mm. Okay. I think um, the, the Holocaust in Hungary, the rounding up of Jews, was being carried out by either other German units or by Hungarian collaborators. Okay, I uh, just I wanted to, to see if there was anything there. Um, so let's let's move a little bit ahead. So the, the war ends, um, and I'm very interested to hear um, you talk about the, the post-war trials of some of the individuals in this unit. Um, who was tried, and where, and by whom? Um, there were two major trials in West Germany, one in Munich and one in the town of Brunswick, and German judicial authorities tried to take um, officers of the two units to court. In particular, uh, the commanders of the two cavalry regiments that were employed in the Pripyat marshes during the summer of 1941, and their subordinates. And um, the trial at Munich dragged on unsuccessfully for some 10 years because um, the German authorities were not really interested in uh, convicting the officers. Uh, the officers defended themselves by um, saying that we only obeyed orders, and the German authorities failed to uh, prove the high, the, the high level of um, uh, initiative displayed by these men in the killings. So um, in the Munich trial, despite the fact that some 20 officers were questioned and brought before the court as accused. No one of them was convicted, and the, the trial was, was ended without any convictions. But um, the Brunswick trial against officers of the other regiment yielded uh, four convictions, 
um, for accessory to murder. So four former officers were convicted of um, war crimes. Um, this was for the killings they conducted in Pinsk, I mentioned earlier, where some seven to 9,000 people were killed within three days. And um, I've had the privilege to interview two of the investigators who were involved in this Brunswick trial. So I, for my dissertation, I was able to look at this particular trial closer. Um, can you um, give us a, a couple more reasons why um, the second trial might have been more successful than the first? Um, was it was it was it just a lack of will, or were there other factors, sort of? Um, and what were the dates of the two trials? Um, the first one, the unsuccessful one, uh, was carried out between 1962 and 1970, and the second one was carried out between 1962 and 1964. And the reason for the second one being more successful was that the investigators were. Um, a lot more motivated to bring perpetrators to court and to convict them. Um, the Munich court that had unsuccessfully uh, investigated the other officers had a reputation for uh, letting um, Nazi criminals get away with their crimes. It is proven for uh, other cases as well. Whereas um, in the case of the Brunswick trial, the investigators um, set out to convict the um, suspects, and also they managed to convict them because they focused on one particular crime, and that was this three-day massacre carried out at Pence. They did not say, we want to investigate everything they did, we focus on this particular uh, crime and try to prove what they did, and they managed to uh, get this done. Um, and you, you mentioned that you interviewed two of the investigators. How, how did they... Um, how do they see these units? How do they how do they frame it for you when you were talking to them? How did they view them? How did they view their crimes? And what did they what were their objectives with the trial? Other, I mean, obviously obtaining convictions, but um, sort of what motivated them personally? Um, one thing the two men had in common was that they were personally uninvolved in war crimes. Um, I've interviewed. Um, a retired uh, attorney who accused the men in the in the trial, and he was an ethnic German himself. He was born in the Ukraine and only came to Germany after the Second World War, and also he was too young to have been involved in any crimes. And the other one was a retired um, police inspector who had served in the Wehrmacht, but who was also very young, and he served in France, but not on the Eastern Front. So he, too, um, did not commit any war crimes. They were not um, veterans of the war who had been um, in a certain role themselves, but they were free from um, prejudice and other objections towards um, taking Nazi criminals to court. And um, they characterized the suspects uh, pretty much as Christopher Browning would have said, ordinary men. So to them, they appeared in their, well, in their post-war roles, um, they were ordinary um, clerks or farmers or workers again. So they said to me that had the war not happened, had uh, the Nazi regime not waged war against other people, most of these accused, most of these war criminals would have led perfectly ordinary lives. And 
it was during the war that they adopted this particular role. They were driven by Nazi ideology. And it can be stated that they did a lot more than what they were ordered to do. Uh, one of the accused in the Brunswick trial stood out because he displayed a very high degree of uh, personal motivation to uh, conduct killings. And he was, um, he committed excessive crimes. And this was tried to, um, they tried to prove that he committed murder himself. Unfortunately, they were not able to convict them, convict him for that. So all four accused were only um, convicted of accessory to murder, which is a specialty of German post-war law. Um, and, and what kind of sentences would accompany that verdict? Um, the four men received sentences of four or five years imprisonment. Um, and do you know if they all served their full terms? As far as I know, they did. Yes. Okay. Apart from one of them who the um, rather excessive perpetrator I mentioned earlier because he escaped from prison but um, later turned himself in to the authorities and then he served his full time. Um, I, I want to talk, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you a little bit about the sources that you use in this book because um, I think you use a, a, a wide variety of, of diverse things that haven't, haven't been available for that long. Um, so I'm going to start with sources then I'm going to ask a historiographical question but um, you talk about the sources you used, how you came up with the idea to use these, um, and I know you mentioned the interviews, um, so we'll, we'll leave that aside. But um, I've also used a lot of original sources from the Waffen-SS, but um, this was impeded by the fact that um, most of the Waffen-SS files did not survive the war. So um, looking for them and using them was pretty much... Um, a kind of puzzle game throughout Europe. I found some of them in Germany and some in the Czech Republic and some in Great Britain. So um, I tried to puzzle together what I found. So I found some original Waffen-SS files from the SS Cavalry Brigade and also from SS administration and staff in Berlin. And um, I've tried to paint a broader picture according to these files. So I used court files for the perspective of the ordinary members I used original Waffen-SS files for the um, battle orders, structures of the units, and orders they carried out in the field. And um, I used the results of the interviews with the two investigators to round up the picture, get today's perspective. And I used a lot of um, modern and also older uh, literature on the Holocaust. And let me ask you, how do you see your work on this particular unit, um, sort of fitting into the larger work of perpetrator studies. You, you, you've mentioned Christopher Browning and a couple of other historians that do, do this kind of work. Um, and, and Waitman Born comes to mind as well for someone who looks at, um, you know, particular army units or, you know, geographical locations. How do you, how do you see yourself in this kind of work on individual units fitting into that sort of broader field, I guess. Um, well, I'm very much indebted to um, German historian Martin Küppers, so I'm going to mention him first because he wrote a study of a special body of SS troops, the so-called uh, Kommandostab Reichsführer SS, which would roughly translate as Command Staff Reichsführer SS, 
and the SS Cavalry Brigade belonged to this body of troops in the summer of 1941. So Martin Kuppers analyzed their role in killings, and it was him who pointed out that the SS Cavalry Brigade initiated um, the killing of entire Jewish communities uh, through shooting massacres in the summer of 1941. Um, what I did from there was to um, look at their performance in combat, because that is something that is still lacking in German historiography. Um, looking at combat performance of Wehrmacht or Waffen-SS units has very long been left to veterans or right-wing publishers, so it has a bit of a dodgy image in Germany, and it only starts now that people are looking at this from a scholarly perspective, and that's what I try to do. So um, I looked at a lot of literature from the field of perpetrator history, and I started with the work of Kuppers. For perpetrator history, I used, for example, um, Harald Welzer's frame of reference theory uh, that explains perpetrator behavior. I have used Thomas Kühne's work on camaraderie amongst soldiers, and um, another important author would be Andre Angrik, who researched German uh, police and Einsatzgruppen units in the Soviet Union, and he offered a lot of possibilities for comparison. So um, this would be my summary of important literature or important researchers, historians who work in this particular field. Yeah. And Thomas Kuhn's new book on comradeship is very good for anybody interested um, in these kinds of topics. Um, so to sort of wrap up discussion of your book, I always, I always like to ask, um, what are one or two things that you'd like people listening or people who read your book to take away from your book? I would like people to take away from my book the dual role of the SS Cavalry Brigade, the role both as a killing squad and as a combat unit, because this is um, a perspective that has not been described before, and that's what makes this unit unique. Other Waffen-SS units um, committed killings as well and fought in combat. Other Nazi killing squads had to fight on the front line as well, but um, not to the not at, um, on the same scale as the SS Cavalry Brigade. So this dual role, killing squad and combat unit, I would like to take people. I would like people to take that away from my book. Um, and also, I would like to um, destroy the myth of. Um, Waffen-SS soldiers as having been an elite during the war. They became highly trained and very well equipped uh, during the war and in many cases they fought bravely and successfully but they started out being badly trained and badly equipped and I would like to fight this perspective that's still being put forward by veterans until today. Um, well, excellent. Um... It, it for everybody listening, it's it's a wonderful book. Um, I hope you all go out and read it. Um, but before I let Henning go, I always like to end interviews with. Uh, I mean, you mentioned all the various things that you were doing uh, in your life at the beginning of the interview, but I'm curious as if you're do if you have any scholarly projects you're working on now. Yes, I have uh, two projects I'm working on now. Um, when my job leaves me time to do so. Uh, one of them is a perpetrator biography, and that's the that's the person, the SS cavalry man who was convicted in the Brunswick trial and escaped from prison. Um, he was a 
SS cavalryman. He took part in the missions of the SS cavalry brigade. And um, but during the war, he um, escaped to Sweden with the help of the Polish underground in Sweden. He was recruited by the British Secret Service and became part of the British propaganda effort against Germany. And after the war, he came back to Germany and um, led a very interesting life because um, he um, he came back as uh, a member of the British uh, occupational government. And later on, when it became known that he'd been a war criminal, he um, he tried to do all kinds of jobs. He was a he was an arms dealer. Um, he, he was an embezzler. He um, he tried to um, did a lot of things that were not legal. Um, until in the early 1960s, he was taken to court and finally convicted for his crimes. And um, he escaped from prison. And after after that, he turned himself into the authorities. And he led such a fascinating life that I thought you, you have to write this down. And I'm currently working on the sixth chapter of this biography. And also I'm working on a contribution to an edited volume. Um, this was my presentation for a conference held at Munich with the German Arbeitskreis Militärgeschichte, Military History Association in 2016. This is also about the um, continuation of the propaganda effort of SS veterans after the war who tried to deny their role in war crimes and the Holocaust, but tried to paint a picture of themselves as war heroes were unjustly uh, prosecuted, and I'm trying to destroy that myth with small contribution to this edited volume. Uh, well, fascinating, and the and the biography sounds very, very interesting. So when you finish it, no pressure or anything. Um, I'd like to have you back to talk about it. Um, Anytime. <laughs> yes, um, I also want to thank you again for being on the show uh, and talking to us about your book. Um, and I also want to thank everybody for listening. Um, Again, this is New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network, and we will see you all next time.